0: Welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoor Adventures Podcast, brought to you by Yellow Hat Outdoors. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 22, coming at you live from Bethany, Oklahoma. Me and Hudson and Landon have a guest with us today, uh, one of my cousins. There's many, if you know my family, around this city, but uh, this one is the one I always end up talking to at all the family events because he likes to hunt and fish just as much as me, probably more. So um, I have Garen caught him in the house with me. How are you doing, Garen? Pretty good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we've been sitting here swapping stories, getting getting caught up in everything, and I'm kind of excited to see where this one goes, so. <laughs> Uh, just talking good goose hunting stories, uh, you know, just, just the good old days. The VHS videos and <laughs> old hunting dogs and everything. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how this one goes. But um, I guess just to start it off, uh, will you tell us a little bit about um, maybe how you grew up, how you got into hunting and fishing? Um, is this something you've always done? Is it something you got into, like, in high school or college how how did you kind of get into into the yeah. outdoors?
1: Um well, so my dad was a Nazarene preach pastor and uh so I grew up in a different town every few years, you know. So gotcha. he was uh pastoring churches mostly little podunk towns, you know, uh Cleo Springs, Oklahoma, Hooker, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> way out uh, there in the panhandle. Uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> He, he he did not grow up hunting and fishing, so we would kind of get adopted by, you know, some families in these small-town churches, you know. So th- somebody will have some land that's got a pond or whatever, and so Dad would take me fishing. And, and so I fished very little with him growing up. And uh, so as I started getting older, probably where I really remember fishing – kind of starting to enjoy it a little bit more we were in Colorado we lived in Colorado Springs for three years and my buddy's dad is a big hunter and fisherman so he'd take us you know teenage kids out and uh so we had trout fish with salmon eggs and you know stuff like that and so uh, after Colorado we went to a uh, uh, little town called Wyoming Illinois and uh over by Kiwani, which I think they called the hog capital of the world or something. And so anyways, the, the there's, you know, there's some rednecks that live up in that <laughs> country, you know. And so they got me into, uh, like, bow fishing for carp and stuff like that. I mean, we were always you – know, well, and then I could drive also. So us teenage boys would take off and we'd, you know, load up several cans of corn and, you know, carp rods and catfish rods and stuff and um, – so that's kind of where I got a little more into the the fishing. Um, they hunted quite a bit, and I wasn't there long enough to to kind of get into the pheasant hunting stuff. But we lived in a parsonage. The behind our house was you know, I don't know how many hundreds of acres of corn literally on the other side of the fence from our you know backyard and and a buddy of mine said years later he goes you have any idea the, the quality of deer and the amount of pheasants that were in your backyard and you didn't even <laughs> uh you know so anyways lost missed out on that um from there we moved to uh, Bar- uh, bartlesville oklahoma and um that's when i started fishing a bunch and we had um, a couple guys in the church that bass fished a ton, and um, I, I befriended a guy um, that was a professional bass fisherman, and, and so he he fished tournaments uh, as his like main occupation, sold boats, stuff like that, and and um, so I I fished with him a bunch, and I thought oh, this is what I want to do. I want to tournament fish the rest of my life. And anyway, came to college and ran into a guy that worked at snu and he fished a bunch of tournaments too and he he says let me tell you about the tournament fisherman or the tournament trail he says okay these are your expenses and that you know he's going through all this stuff and he says in the end you lose way more money than (laughs) you're gonna make and he says so you need to think about the school thing you know and so anyways that was my freshman first of my freshman year there at snu okay so then I met, met one of my buddies that I'm still real good friends with today. He says, you know, everybody's getting to know each other those first few weeks of, of college. And and everybody knew that I fished a bunch. And uh, I mean, I I was as ate up as, you know, all college kids are when they get into something. and. So this, this buddy of mine says, well, what do you do in the winter? And I said, oh, I fish. And he goes, no, no, you can't fish all winter. I said, yeah, you know, that's what I do. And he says, no, we got to get you into duck hunting. And uh, have you ever been? No, never been. So um, next season rolls, so that season, I I was trying to play basketball, trying to work, trying to go to school, trying to goof off. And, and you know, hunting didn't come around then. Um, I guess it was the... The next year, I kind of started getting into it. Bought my first shotgun and, you know, started dove hunting. And all those college kids were going all over, you know, Piedmont and Yukon <laughs> and El Reno getting permission and and um, duck hunting stench gum. And so us group of guys, I mean, we would plan our school schedule so that we could duck hunt every morning, you know. And so – and then somebody in our group, I mean, we wore stench gum out. It was – okay, you guys, you can get the blinds early in the morning, and if you'll stay there until this class, we, after that class, we'll come out, and then we'll have those blinds for the evening hunt, you know. I mean, it's amazing there was a bird around. We just wore the place out. So, um, anyways, that is kind of how I got into, you know, hunting. And then it's, oh, as a young married girl couple and no kids you get to spend a lot of time hunting there and and i had my first marriage did not work out as planned but we did not end up with any kids out of that marriage and then so i was single for oh i don't know the next how many years nine years after that or something no no, eight years after that so i got a lot of (laughs) a lot of good hunting in in that time frame and then my wife which is you know your cousin is an angel you know let me do pretty much anything i wanted through before kids and then into the young young ages of kids and let me probably hunt and be away more than i should have but um as my kids are getting older they're 12 and 9 now about to be 12 and 10 um they are more active a lot more active and they've started hunting and fishing quite a bit so it's it's that transition of me, me, me and, and doing all that for me kind of slowed way down to kind of take care of them. And now I kind of find my fulfillment in getting them into it. And, uh, and it is way more fun and way more exciting to have them do it and see their firsts and stuff, uh, and see the woods in the water through their eyes. It's so much more fun than, me doing it personally i didn't think that was possible but it's it's awesome so that's where we are today and gosh
0: that's awesome yeah that's (laughs) what a great roller coaster from literally the boondocks of oklahoma to
1: colorado springs yeah there's no water out in the panhandle and and so yeah not a lot of opportunity back in those days
0: yeah i always one of my buddies i used to work with he had a a mug from hooker oklahoma he drank coffee out of that every morning
1: (laughs) He
0: loved that
1: thing. Well, the, so real quick story on that. My dad used to, he, well, he, he was, I guess maybe still is an artist, but anyway, he did a lot of sign painting. And so his his favorite story to tell about Hooker is, uh, so he's painting the sign out on the highway and he's got, you know, he has stencils and stuff and is drawing all this on. Well, he had, what he would do was paint one side of the sign, go around and do the same thing on the other signs side. So he has a, uh, Welcome to Hooker is supposed to say home of the horny toads, which was their, uh, uh, American Legion baseball team, you know? So anyways, it's Wednesday night. He has to get to church. He can't finish the whole sign and he comes out the next day. He says there's skid marks from 18 wheelers out in front of the sign, which I think he just inserted that. But anyways, (laughs) the sign, all he had time to paint was welcome to, to hooker home of the horny and didn't get the (laughs) toads and the little mascot painted on the bottom and all that. So, he loves to, as a pastor. That's about his raciest joke that he's ever told. And and but it's you know mostly true too. So, Steve <laughs> Marks. And, and now the Chamber of Commerce. They sell more merchandise that says uh, "hooker." It's a it's a location, not a vocation. I think that's how they say it. So, anyways, a lot of good jokes around that city. But. Oh, that is awesome. I love that.
2: <laughs> what a great pastor to have. <laughs> yeah.
0: did, you, uh, did you say, what What lakes around Bartlesville and stuff did you grow up uh, fishing a lot
1: on? Uh, mostly Grand, but okay. man, there was a lot of good water in in that country i mean versus we got to travel a good ways to get to a a, you know a decent lake here in the city but man up there we fished um mostly grand okay Uh, that was about an hour from the house to the water where we like to go is it was about an hour so anyways um copan was just right up the road from bartlesville and they had little wednesday night jackpots or tuesday night jackpots that i'd fish with that that you know, professional fisherman he ran That's the it. jackpots, so yeah, good teammates, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there was a little lake between Bartlesville and Dewey called Bardu, and I don't know what the equivalent of the size would be on that, but it'd it fit a, a two man gray, you know. So we fished that a bunch, but then we'd also fish um, uh, Sky I took and um, golly, Hudson, um, you know, anyway, a, a bunch of those up in that area and um so but yeah grand was was kind of the go-to and probably had the best day of fishing i've ever had up there and it was one of those days when you hit it just right and i mean it's just wearing out the big ones you know and was uh, that was that like springtime or summer no it was summer yeah yeah and uh what was crazy is hey and this is kind of Tells you how old I am Uh, So I'm fishing with this guy This is 1992 I think He had photo albums in his book Whenever the water went down On Grand Lake He would go along the bank And take pictures of the bank And that way whenever the water came back up You knew what was underneath it So I remember going out across this It was in uh, in the Horseshoe Creek um, Or Horse Creek I guess
0: Eh.
1: Anyway one of the two In that arm of the lake And he say, okay, get that red folder out, and uh, you know he's and so I get it out and I flip and he says, okay, look at those pages right there, those pictures, that's what's underneath the water on this stretch of bank right here, and um, so that I I don't remember the numbers uh, like the quantity that we caught that day, but we caught two fish under two pounds, and everything else was between two and a half and six pounds, and it was, I, I oh man if i had to say I, we probably caught 30 of them that size I, oh, hey wow. and the whiteies are busting out beside us too so we got little sassy shad rigged up and every time the whiteies would start going here we go we'd veer off over here we'd catch Shh. three or four white bass and then we'd go back to bass fishing and i mean it was it was unbelievable and we never left that arm you know and really we're just on one end of that arm of the creek and anyway <laughs> so good memories on grand that's yeah. a dream day yeah It doesn't get any better than
0: that. Getting a little double trouble—that's great. Yeah, I love that. It—that's also yeah, so old school. I always wish I would have done that on some of the, like on American Horse Lake. We fished that nonstop whenever we were in high school in the summers, and that's when they were working on the dam. So, I mean, it was thirty or you know feet lower than it is. You know, now it's completely full again. So. Mm All this structure we used to always fish, you know, it was just deep underwater, and so I'm like, man, I kind of wish I had better, you know, recollection or had taken some pictures and uh-huh. stuff. But you know, there is still some of that. That yeah. you, there's some big humps out there, and mm-hmm. you know, you you won't forget where those are. But yeah. some of those isolated
1: trees and stuff, I'm like, yeah. man, I wish. And nowadays, you don't even need the pictures because we got the dang, uh, you know, live scope and all yeah. this, you know, fancy, you know, fish finding technology and uh, uh, is underwater cameras, basically.
0: Uh huh. And you've been getting a PhD in live scoping, oh, huh? Gosh. <laughs> it is something. It is something. <laughs> Would you say it's like just change the game? Crappie oh, and uh, no, bass fishing? No question. Yeah. yeah
1: no question. However,. Travis went out uh, Sunday to a place we did really, really, really good on a while back and he caught one fish all day. <laughs> no, he left about... He left there at oh, two, two or 3 o'clock, you know. But dark till 2 o'clock, he caught one fish. so Even with that live scope here's a problem now you can see that they're not biting they're there you can just see them not bite you you know with years ago you'd say ah there's nothing here and you just move on no they're there <laughs> they just wouldn't bite anything God. so
0: yeah whenever you think there's a
1: fish right there there probably is he just doesn't want to bite man I, so it was a couple summers ago we were up at mcmurtry and uh i think that was really kind of when travis and john and i went was really the first time I'd seen the live scope, you know, really in action, I guess. And so I I came back home after that trip and, and I told somebody, oh yeah, my buddy's got this live scope. And they're like, oh yeah, well what what did you learn from that? And I go, what I learned is every single tree under the water has a school of crappie on it. Every single tree. It doesn't matter if there's 10 trees in the area or there's a hundred trees. Every tree has a school of crappie under it. It was nuts. Wow. And, and if you can get the right lure to them, you can catch them. It's I mean, it wouldn't it's nothing to catch a hundred crappie in a day. Gosh. I mean that blows my mind. It's That's... it's wild. It's yeah. I I mean, I kinda wish it maybe it had not been invented, you know. I I think eventually there may be regulation changes uh because of the effectiveness of it, whether it's bass limits or crappie limits or whatever because a lot of people can access that now i mean if you and you got to know what you're doing but eventually if you have it you're going to learn it and you're going to you know potentially well we've just started keeping crappie and white bass and eating them and and i'm not going to throw too many more of them back especially if you can catch a whole mess of them you know yeah so sometimes when you're fishing you catch one good whitey and you're like oh i don't know you know you're throwing all your largemouth back uh, do we really want to keep one white bass? Well, you might catch two or three more throughout the day, and you think, oh, well, should we have kept any of those? Well, now, you know, you get in, you catch one of them, well, you can see there's a whole other school, and you're like, okay, they're biting this, we're keeping these, you know? So yeah. if I'm thinking that, if you are doing it and thinking that, and you, there's other people out there, eventually I think it may, I don't know to what degree, but it may affect some of that, so... I think they may have to, you know, we may see changes in regs or something because it's so effective. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I did not really thought of that.
2: I I had only really thought about changes in tournament rules a little yeah. bit, but yeah. yeah, I didn't think about changing limits or even like, you know, if, if you're keeping fish and we have a, you know, you got a live scope on, like, and if we check you or something, like you can get fined for just having the live scope if you're keeping fish or something i don't know that's really interesting
1: yeah i mean it's pretty early in the game to kind of be able to predict too well you know what what those might be but i could i could definitely i mean it's just if it's changed the game that much for me some you know novice amateur that just enjoys it but you can get more serious about it, it multiply that times however many people are in the same boat or more addicted and Mm-hmm. And uh, to the fishing game, and and I, yeah, that's one another thing about getting older. You kind of you, you, you used to throw everything back. It was catch and release on almost everything. And you go, oh, those old guys, man, they're keeping everything. You know, they always having fish fries. That's what old people do. Well, here we are. We're the old people, <laughs> and we like we like eating fish and having yeah. fish fries, and and so yeah. If if us old guys can figure out this young kids technology and and utilize it to keep having fish fries and it'll it'll change some numbers at some point I think yeah
2: I mean fishing with my dad growing up and stuff we'd only keep fish if it you know sand bass started schooling, and then we were just pulling them in <laughs> and but like besides that it was it was you know catch and release pretty much mm-hmm. I mean because it was like he said I don't know if we're gonna get a kid any more of these so yeah. we might as well just toss it back yep yeah. yeah, we we always it was very rare that we would do a big fish fry,
0: but it felt like kind of once a year or something. Go out to a farm pond and just smash bluegill, crappie, cat, whatever we caught. Just yeah. get a good old fish fry going, and and it's it's good, especially when they're fresh. And oh yeah, it's a, it's a good time. But yeah, like Hudson, I'm I'm just as likely to get skunked as I am to catch you know. 10, so mm-hmm. it's rarely, uh, I don't always put the effort into skin them up and stuff. But yeah. I don't always chase, I don't really chase crappie too much. For me, they're more of like just a bycatch. Like, yes, yeah. I'm like, oh, what are, this is a weird feeling bass. And then, you know, pull up a big old slab crappie. But yeah. Well,
1: uh, how old are you? You, you add 25 yep. years or so <laughs> to what age you are, and you're going to be thinking different. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so uh so we're thinking you know it is springtime so we you said in college you kind of got into duck and dove hunting and stuff like that um d- did you ever try out any turkey hunting around then or yeah
1: yeah so um my first experience with turkey hunting was uh <clears throat> so i guess it was probably what the spring of 90. So it would have been so it would have been the spring of '96, I guess. So I I go down to the uh, wildlife department, not knowing a thing about turkey hunting, but just thought, okay, if it, we just got done shooting ducks and geese, and and so turkeys next, so let's go up here and talk to some people that know what they're talking about. And so we go in the wildlife department. They send us downstairs, and we go into the information and education department, and they said, oh, they'll have some maps and stuff of public land for you. So we went down there, and um, I met Todd Craighead and a couple other guys. And so Todd's taking us around the office, and he's giving us maps. You know, he gives us this book of WMAs, and he says, okay, and then take this. This is for this place, and this is this place, and and gave us, you know, an hour's worth of turkey hunting tips and stuff. And, and uh, we exchanged phone numbers, and... Anyways, I went to Lexington Wildlife Management Area. You know, the closest public hunting area to the city, and uh, thinking that you know, some guy who's never been in the turkey woods before can go to the most maybe heavily hunted wildlife management area near the metropolitan and uh, and get something. So I was kind of dumb in that thinking, (laughs) and uh, so. I don't know if Todd called me or if I called him and he checked to see, you know, see how things went. And of course, you know, we didn't have anything. And so he, he asked, Hey, you know, out of my lease, I don't have anybody going with me on this last weekend. I can take a guest if you want to go. So, you know, he took me out to his lease and, uh, sure enough, we got on a Turkey, but this, this Turkey was on the other side of the Creek. And Todd says, Oh man, you know, Here's something, and he was coaching me through all, I mean, really mentoring me, and uh, it was showing me how to call, you know, calling for us, but also teaching me how to call, and then teaching me what calls to use and when, and we hear this thing, you know, gobbling on the other side of the creek, and he says, oh, yeah, you know, typically, it's hard to get them across a creek, so we're going to need to go over to that side of the creek so here we go trying to sneak off through this thing and getting wet and muddy and this and that and we get over on the other side of the creek and we get set up we call him this thing gobbles and he's on the other side of the creek where we just were and he (laughs) goes well that 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 wasn't supposed to happen so anyways we go back over to that side you know thinking he's going to stay over there the next time we hear him he's back where we called the other time so anyways it was a cat and mouse game (laughs) with a turkey doing stuff turkey wasn't supposed to do and and uh so anyhow that was my first official turkey hunt and kind of how it went and you know here we are however many decades later and and uh you know same silly stuff's happening with these birds like well that wasn't supposed to happen you know so Uh that that's one constant that you know in the turkey woods is that they they don't know they're outsmarting you but (laughs) they're outsmarting (laughs) you and all these years later you don't get any better you just have the same kind of same luck and uh-huh. And, uh, same enjoyment out of it, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what what was the first time you ever got one? Was that
1: kind of the next year or? Yep. Okay. Yep. The next, uh, it probably was that next year, but it was up in Kansas. So the first bird I shot was in Kansas. I uh, had a buddy that lived in Rose Hill, which is a little suburb of Wichita. He had some land outside of Wichita that uh, are – East of Rose Hill that he could hunt and had a bunch of turkeys on it. So we went out there and I mean, there was a bad thunderstorm that morning and we're sitting out there in the rain, the lightning and the thunder, and then the rain goes away, but it's still lightning and thunder. And I mean, so once the weather's kind of clearing up and the the sky's getting a little blue, you know, and um, every time it thunders, these turkeys are gobbling. And I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And so they're across this pasture at about 200 yards. And uh, so anyways, Every time they go, gobble, oh, well, there, there goes. our lightnings, thunders are going off, and uh, then we start seeing them pitching out of the trees, and so we're on the west side of this field, sitting in a in a tree line, and they're out on the east side of the field. So we watch this one big strutter that stayed in the field. We watched four different hens come up to him and lay down, and watched him breed four different hens before he started coming over to us. Which that was. Fascinating. I mean, I get to see and hear these gobblers in a storm. Then I get to see breeding, and this sucker struts two hundred yards across this field. I mean, ten feet at a time and spinning around, another ten feet spinning around. So it, it takes him thirty minutes to get over to us or whatever. It gets close enough. My buddy goes, "Oh, he's double bearded. I can't believe this. Your first turkey's going to be a double bearded, you know, Tom." And, uh, and and it wasn't like a nice beard and, a, and kind of a spindly short, but it was two ropes. I mean, it was impressive. You know, I I didn't know anything about turkeys, and I could see those, you know, through the binoculars, see those those uh, beards. And I mean, I'm all worked up, you know. And this sucker hangs up at about seventy yards, at sixty yards, and I've just got a you know three inch number sixes or whatever, and. Uh, it, neither of us thought we had enough firepower and of course the whole time we're thinking oh he's going to make it he's going to come on in and uh, he never did he ends up turning around and walking away from us and uh, so anyway Chris says let's go out to my father-in-law's they live a couple hours west of there and we were going to spend the rest of the weekend out there so we'll get one when we go out there so we go out to John's house and uh, these birds are roost he lives on about 10 acres but he backs up to half a section of CRP and And uh, Kansas is is a pretty neat place, you know. But so anyhow, um, we sit behind the house uh, that afternoon, and we call a a Jake in, and I end up shooting that Jake, you know, and that. So that was my first turkey. Was the afternoon of that other experience, you know. And um, so, anyways, it. Every turkey you shoot is as exciting as that one, almost. Uh You know that. I I don't think your excitement ever dulls in in that realm. I just turkeys do it for me.
0: Yeah, one, especially when you get a show like that. I mean, that's (laughs) that is awesome. There's nothing better than when you're sitting there and you can just hear them drumming around Um, and just. There's not a better
1: sound in the woods and getting to hear them spit and drum.
2: Uh huh.
0: Nothing better. That is so cool. Yeah, and it, it's also nice, like, kind of when your first whatever thing you harvest, you got to kind of work for. Yeah. I feel like that makes it so much. Not, I mean, not that it can make it that much better, but the whole the experience is, like, more full. Yep. So, Absolutely. Yeah, that's. I was talking the other day about my first turkey. We spent the whole weekend, you know, hunting black kettle, you know, public land yep. and all this. And then finally, you know, packing it up at the end of the day, just fishing at my cousin's farm pond. And then, you know, it all comes together at 3.30 in the afternoon here in the gobbles. So it's just awesome whenever you get to get to work for it like that.
2: Absolutely, yeah. That's pretty awesome. New, pretty new to this whole turkey thing, but I didn't know they
1: get double beards. How does how does that mm-hmm. work or happen? Do you guys know at all? I don't. I have not studied it enough to know if it's a genetic thing or it, it is not an age thing. I killed a double bearded Jake once, um, so cool. it's definitely not an age deal. But I don't know what causes it. And, and really, it's kind of just a oh, a teeny tiny patch of skin in between. Like you'll have your one main beard. There'll be a teeny tiny patch of skin, you know, just, I don't know how many millimeters wide and there comes another one. And, and usually each, um, extra beard is, uh, what, half the length of the first one or something, you know, Mm -hmm. thinner, shorter most of the time. But yeah, I mean, there's five and six bearded turkeys killed every now and then per state. So I don't, I don't really know what causes it but it's it's pretty special to especially if you don't notice them I, I killed a triple bearded tom once and didn't notice it until i went up to it you know so that was oh kind of God. neat Gosh, treat, that's you know? awesome yeah. Where was
0: that in oklahoma
1: yeah woods woods county yeah okay mm-hmm.
0: that's up northwest right yep okay yep. that's awesome so where i guess where's your favorite place that you've turkey hunted uh kind of around the state maybe do you do you like the Easterns better? Do you like the I've, Rios not, killed out a, I've west? not
1: killed an Eastern yet. Okay. Yeah. So and don't have much experience with them other than you know I've I've gone one time in particular was trying to help a buddy and his boy kill one with a bow, which is okay. Add that complexity Gosh. to Oklahoma public land Easterns. It was I mean that was a challenge, but we did lots of kind of reading up and talking to people about it and and the way most people said to hunt Oklahoma Easterns it doesn't seem like they should have to be that hard because everything east to here is Easterns and you see all these videos on TV and people's experience you know Georgia and Alabama and and, you know the Carolinas and all this it really just good gobbling working real good and I think if they're that hard to kill in Oklahoma how is everybody else east to here, you know, why do they work so good for them? You know, why why shouldn't it be harder to kill a turkey over there, too, in eastern? But um, anyway, I've never really hunted for them other than that one time. And I kind of I was there for calling and moral support and stuff. to um, This buddy of mine and his boy neither had killed many turkeys and hadn't done a lot of, you know, hunting for them and calling and all that stuff. So I was kind of just there for, for that. And, uh, man, it was – the even the terrain is unbelievable. It's obviously different than northwest Oklahoma. You know, that's where I've killed the majority of my turkeys is up in Woods County. And, you know, it's uh, sand hills and plum thickets and cottonwood trees, and you can see forever. And the population of the birds up there in that part of the state, you know, used to was – astronomical better than anywhere else you know so um, much much different than southeast where they have a shorter season not as many birds publicly pressured and all that kind of stuff so um, I'd have to say my favorite is northwest Oklahoma you know just cuz that's kinda where I cut my teeth and, and you know they just my buddy's family has a good amount of ground, and nobody hunts, so these birds kind of don't ever see people, and they just work the way they're supposed to. And and uh, and then you you know the lay of the land, you kind of know that oh the dry creek bed's always got turkeys in it, and you know so that's where you start there. Okay, if that doesn't work, let's go down to the corrals, down the river bottom, and and so you kind of always have your places, and and uh, you go from one spot to the next, to the next, to the next until. They act right, yeah. you know, but there used to be so many turkeys that if you sit there and mess with them and they just, they were hinned up, didn't want to come to you, you say, ah, we're done playing with this, let's let's go over there to, you know, that other spot down Fair Valley and, and, you know, try there. And so you could leave turkeys that don't want to play to go, you know, get some birds that would play, which now, our population now, something's going on and it's, we don't have those numbers anywhere in the state really, so it's kind of, mm-hmm i don't know the turkey hunting memories the hunts the pursuit is probably gonna look different for the next few years than it did in years past but uh do you have any theories on
0: that i know everyone has different thoughts and, and uh, stuff yeah. going on but
1: i thought i did um <laughs> i thought it had a lot to do with predators you know uh, there's been all kinds of theories out there like so did avian flu have anything to do with it? The, Um, what the quail get those eye worms and stuff now did that have anything to do with it okay is it predators is it you know the NWTF they're a big um, kind of proponent of uh, habitat and they're like well so you know some of the good roosting habitat and nesting habitats not what it used to be so that may be a good portion of it so anyway tons and tons of theories evidently it is not you know I kind of thought this was a problem that we had in Oklahoma, in, in the heaviest turkey-populated county, we go from one year, you go out in the weekend and see 200 birds. The next year, I, I was saying to people, I think I saw half as many birds this year as last year. Every trip that I would go on in a season out there, you would see half as many as you did the year before. And that happened for five or six years. In the last year that we attempted to hunt out there, we and I mean, we're talking thousands of acres, and uh, we hunted for two and a half days and saw two jakes, and we said, okay, if the population's hurting that bad, we're not hunting them anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't afford to lose one more bird out here, and you kind of, I was thinking, oh, this is mostly a northwest Oklahoma problem, and then you hear everybody in the state talking about it. Well, then you talk to, you know, a buddy that, I talked to one guy, he, He hunts four or five states every year. He says, oh, no, Indiana's bad. I was, you know, public hunting in Kentucky, and they said this is the worst year they've ever had. I was in Tennessee. There's no birds there. He says, everywhere I went, everybody said they have virtually no birds in comparison to years before. So, um after getting off of all social media and stuff my form of entertainment when i have downtime is watching youtube and it's springtime or watching lots of turkey hunting videos and i'm seeing people from all these other states that um, are saying oh yeah due to the decline in population you know, we're having to go fund me we're going to raise money to buy you know testing kits for whatever university and this and that mm-hmm. and and so it's not just us it's everywhere so what i thought was Oh, there's a ton of predators. The fur market's non-existent anymore, it seems like. I mean, no, it's not... Oh, I mean, we can't buy furs anymore. You know, there's this... You know, PETA's kind of sh- shut some things down or whatever. It's not... Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not woke or whatever if you're wearing furs. So anyhow, i got lots of theories on that stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's no furs being utilized anymore. So... There's no motivation for anybody to go out and trap because the furs aren't worth anything. Gas prices are through the roof. You're not going to go out and run trap lines to get animals that are worth nothing. All of those animals, skunks, possums, coons, um, all those nest robbers are out there going, hey, we got no pressure. We're having a heyday. They're eating all these eggs. And uh, so I kind of thought that might be the majority of the problem, you know, but I I talked to lots of wildlife department people uh whether it be game wardens or biologists or or you know different people around the department and and what i feel like the bottom line was they don't have a finger on like they don't have an answer yet like they can't pinpoint this is the problem and i think it's a combination of a lot of stuff you know there was one year that ice storm. We had a bad ice storm that took down a lot of habitat, killed a lot of birds. And I had a buddy kind of up in the northwest part. He says, I think the ice storm killed our turkeys. Then you got people over the eastern part said, oh, we had a huge flood during nesting season. And I mean, every river was out of its banks. We think that, you know, messed up a lot of the nests, a lot of the nesting activity, all that kind of stuff. So you you have one bad year that you have got nothing hatched. And then you what have depredation and all that stuff throughout the year. Then you have another big uh, harvest. You got less birds to breed and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of just a chain reaction. So it seemed like there may have been a perfect storm for several years where there's something going on that was really killing the, you know, the nesting and the, um, the success of these, you know hatchlings to where it's just kind of killed the population but the wildlife department is doing dna samples this year so they have kits that you can take tissue samples off of i guess they're sending to osu graduate students and they're doing that deal i talked to
0: one of the guys he's gonna send me one great so i'm i'm pretty excited about it he was like or you just have one right and i was like yeah and he was like uh, well, do you, do you know anyone that has another one? Or, and I was like, well, I'm going out next weekend, so hopefully I can let you know we'll get a uh-huh. couple more. But yeah. I was like, send me one and I'll send it to you. I'm like, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's yeah.
1: cool to get to participate mm-hmm. in it. Absolutely. And, and I love it that we live in a state that recognized that the hunters were panicked, you know, and there was enough of an issue that, they decided, I mean, in a year's time frame, we're cutting the limit from three to one. There's no fall, you know, hunting, no, you know, no hens killed anymore. We're moving the season back 10 days. I mean, they did a ton of stuff to say, we recognize there's an issue, we're going to try and fix it. And it seemed like it was drastic changes. And I, I love that. Yeah. Everything they did, I absolutely love it. And if they keep it that way for three or four years and these things can bounce back from whatever the issue was, you know, all of these things they're doing, if it helps it, I'm all in, you know? Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. That's whenever Hudson and I were out there, he was kind of like, you know, so what are we looking for? And I was like, well, if they have a beard, you can shoot them. But I was like, if there's a bearded hen, we, we can't shoot it. You know, the population's too small right now. It's just, you need every one of those around. No doubt no doubt it's weird so like i don't know i've been listening to some like the wildlife biologists and stuff talk about it and it's interesting because last year um we we hunt out there north of black kettle kind of near mm-hmm. pack saddle wma mm-hmm. um and we had the most jakes we've ever seen in the spring out there when like, this year Last year, year. like 12 or 15 in a group. That's great. And so it's just, it's weird because we always have huge numbers in the fall, like Mm -hmm. groups of 70 or 80 that roost in the creek bottom. Mm -hmm. And there's been plenty of years we haven't seen any Toms or Jake's or anything out there during the spring, but last year we had a ton of them. So it's just, it's just interesting how, you know, kind of patchy it can be Mm -hmm. and how. You know, just doesn't quite make sense. It's like normally you can point to one thing and, yeah. but it, you can't on this. It's weird.
1: Well, uh, my buddy has a place down um, kind of in Southwest Oklahoma, and he said throughout all of these years, he said our population hasn't done anything different. It, they they've always been, there. they always have in the past. Didn't see any difference in numbers throughout all of this stuff. They're there now. And, uh, in fact, he invited my boy to go down and we shot his first Turkey down there. And, uh, he says, I want you to come down and let's do a, you know, a big boys hunt. And, uh, I just thought, Oh my gosh, really? Do we want to take two birds off of the same place? You know, I felt kind of, I was feeling convicted about that. Uh huh. And we went down there Saturday and, and we shot one off our last Sunday and, and we shot one off of it then. And I thought, Oh my word. You know, he, he'd been having this one particular long beard walk in front of the camera a couple times a day, you know, and I'm, and he would often send me pictures and there it was as Tom, it looked kind of like the same one, you know, and it was always by himself. And I was kind of thinking, okay, so my boy shot one, one of the Jakes on there. Now there's this one long beard and. I just shot it, and he sends me a pic. So, uh, what is today, Tuesday? Uh-huh. So, Monday, yesterday, he sends me a picture. There was two more t- uh, longbeards walked in front of that camera, and I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling bad about shooting the only longbeard on the place, and two more show up. That's so awesome. So, his little pocket hasn't ever seemed to be affected, but yet, northwest Oklahoma, in that, in that, that particular ranch uh-huh. area that we hunted on, goes from 200 to two in a matter of three or four years you know it's crazy
2: my theory on this is that i think two years ago was when glenn was trying to get me into turkey hunting and start turkey hunting so i think that may have affected the population the past couple years because hudson's back out in the woods trying to get a turkey and i think uh i don't know that's just how things go
1: they got word and they scattered they're like "Uh uh-uh we're not sticking around now
2: (laughs) yeah i'm I'm a
0: bad luck charm when it comes (laughs) to that stuff so (laughs) well uh so the other thing i wanted to ask you a little bit about is your taxidermy stuff so um you do pretty much all birds yep that's cool
1: so what what kind of inspired you to start doing that um so back in college i had a buddy that from arkansas that uh he went to taxidermy school for like a year he did everything and then he decided he'd come to snu so he came to snu and uh we shot some ducks one day um together and i shot a beautiful widget and i said hey i'd like you to mount this and okay so he put it in his freezer there at the house and um looking back I was an impatient college student and I thought okay he's got time to mount my bird he should be mounting my bird but he's playing street hockey and now he's playing basketball and now he's you know chasing girls and I'm like hey when are you going to mount this bird he says if you just come to the house and sit with me that that would motivate me to get it done so come over you know sit down so I sat next to him and and he basically mounted it in front of me and I thought oh that was cool that's didn't seem that hard, and I thought, well, wow, if I knew how to do this myself, I could mount, just like all of us want to mount a drake of everything we shoot, you know? Uh I want my house filled with these things, and uh, so anyway, that kind of gets... That's a (laughs) before-wife kind of thought. (laughs) (laughs) And so here I'm thinking, oh, that looked easy enough. I'll do it. Okay, so that's in about 1999, I think, was. Um, Nah, maybe that was too... No, it was 99. Anyhow, so about 2001, spring of 2001, I get divorced. And, uh, so now I am by myself in this little house with a house payment, a truck payment, school bills, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I mean, I've just got all of this on my shoulders. So I pick up a second job. And so now I'm working a full-time job, a part-time job. And at my part-time job, one of my coworkers said, uh, hey, they're offering a little taxidermy class down at this VoTech, would you have any interest in doing it? And I'm a few years removed from getting to watch it. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. I, you know, might be able to make some extra money. And so we go down take this little taxidermy class. And, um, the guy says, Hey, you know, we've just got six weeks to do this. We don't have time to get into everything. How about we just learn to do birds? And I'm like, okay, excellent. And, uh, and it's around then I realize I'm allergic to deer I can't I mean the second I touch them start skinning them whatever I just if I touch my skin I I get you know highs my skin gets all red and itchy my eyes swell shut I sneeze like crazy and so anyway deer taxidermy is out of the question Uh you know and so anyway so I'm like yeah birds this is great so I learned to do birds and little did I know that the method we were taught for even That time period was like ancient, you know. And so I learned basically primitive ways to mount these birds. And uh, so, you know, I get really travis was kind of one of the most experimental uh, buddies that I had, you know. And of course, Travis, he's all in for anything, you know. And he says, Oh, you're learning how to do birds? He goes, Oh, I got this snow goose I want mounted. Okay. Well, how much did you do that for? Oh, 100 bucks. I don't know okay, you know, let's do it. So I did it. And he goes, oh, I got this Pentel too. Okay, so there, oh, my buddy's got, you know, such and such. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And so anyhow, I decide, well, maybe if I'm doing enough of these, I'll start a little business. And I set up a booth down at the Backwoods Show and advertised. And so that turned into a part-time gig. So now I got myself three jobs, you know, yeah. and I, I'm really having to do all this to make ends meet. And so that's kind of why i i did it was you know i work one job till five go work till nine o'clock at nine thirty get this other job come home skin a bird or do it in pieces you know and so i'm doing mountain birds in the late evening and the weekends and stuff and um so that's kind of why i got started um needed the money all that stuff well fast forward a little bit i meet Lori and, and she kind of essentially gets me a job up at Chesapeake. And now I'm like, Oh wow, I can finally go down to one job, you know? And so I went from three jobs to one and I didn't have to have, you know, I still wasn't making a bunch of money. I was in the, you know, bottom rung of the corporate ladder, but it, it basically equaled three jobs before. So I kind of uh-huh. got to ease off of it and uh, worked at Chesapeake for almost 13 years. and finally had enough of the corporate deal I said okay let me let me do something different I'm not digging the corporate job anymore and then so well the only thing I know that I'm interested in or even remotely care to do is taxidermy so let's try it and I said you know if we can just try this for a year if it fails then I'll go get a real job and we're almost six years into it so that's gosh it worked out I mean is working out well so far so. That's awesome.
0: And you're just, are you just covered up with birds? Like, I know we talked I, maybe last summer and you're like, man, I got a lot of birds. This is, you know,
1: it's just really going well. Yeah. So
0: has that stayed, you know, pretty consistent?
1: Yeah. Um, I didn't know how to say no. For, I'm not a good business person. I, I, I feel like I need to stay middle of the road prices, maybe a little on the, cheaper side of things just because I didn't have you know confidence and was just starting up and then people keep telling me oh you're gonna have to go up on your prices you're gonna get too much business in well here you know the second year comes around and people start getting word that I'm doing business and I learned how to do social media and all of a sudden the work is just coming 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 and and I couldn't tell anybody no I mean my prices are good and I feel like my work was getting better and I'm I'm felt like I was too nice to say to you when you called or you know if you call I'm like oh man Glenn I I really need to I've got too many in already I'd go ah oh, just one more and it's family you know so <laughs> I, but that was happening all the time uh-huh so, and it took me two or three years to realize how many I could do in a seat, in, in a year's worth of time so it's pretty easy to get a year and a half pushing two years backed up and you go oh this is what everybody was talking about okay i've got to i've got to find a quota i've got to stop this at some point and say no more till next year so i got better at saying no i got better at figuring out how many i could do in a year and would shut it off so right the bird i mounted today came in and Oh, what? It was a year and a half ago. So, but I kind of have kept that year to year and a half time frame. Uh huh. But last year, I really shut stuff off, tightened it up. And I think, knock on wood, I think I can get to the bottom of the freezer by November and hopefully start at ground zero at the beginning of every season. Take in only what I can do in a year. So nobody waits longer than a year. And I don't have any. I feel anxiety and stress. Most people, I've been really, really blessed with good customers. They're not beating me up, you know. I've hear some horror stories from people, other tax Their customers are yelling at them. They're saying you've had it too long. You've had excuse after excuse. I, I mean, but I've told everybody for three years now. Expect somewhere between you know twelve and eighteen months, and I've pretty well been able to stick to it. But I've been blessed that nobody really is has been too upset. But I want to get everything under a year. Uh And I think I've found a path to do that. And so, um, but, but it's pretty crazy that a luxury item like duck and goose and pheasant taxidermy can keep somebody in business and help pay the bills and all that with just this luxury item, even through COVID and stuff, you know, when money was tight for a lot of people, it's been, it's just been a real blessing. That's cool. Real blessing.
2: Do you have a favorite uh, bird you like to do? Oh. Or maybe your most favorite bird that you have done, just singular.
1: Yeah. Um, man, uh, do you all know Blake Cobb? Mm-hmm. Um, That's Jason Morris's cousin. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Blake went down to South Texas to hunt with a buddy of mine and shot a blue-phase Ross uh, goose, which is a tiny little, tiny goose the size of a Ross, but it's a blue-phase, like a blue goose and is is really pretty rare so anyways Blake shoots this little Ross down there um so that was kind of neat my my friend here goes down there hunts with my other friend that got me started kills this thing and then Blake's uh dog that retrieved that bird ended up passing away and um Blake one obviously wants the bird mounted and I uh, had his pup cremated and so i mounted that blue phase ross for a uh our oklahoma taxidermist association convention and uh competition so i thought okay i'm gonna deck this bird out a little bit you know so i kind of did some special stuff and entered it in that in the co- uh, competition but in the base of that we we did a a water scene and kind of a a field scene that simulated where he killed it and in the in the dirt we mixed in the pups ashes oh. and so we have the ashes in the in the dirt and then uh he had his paw print well i did kind of a reverse, um uh imprint of that paw and put that down in the corner where the water covered that paw print and um so that's probably one of my my favorites. That's awesome. <laughs> and I was I was I tied for state champion with that piece. Me and a buddy of mine that I mentored. Uh, it, he he was coming over to my house when I lived in that tiny house when I was single. He was coming over and I was teaching him how to do taxidermy. And he's he's about ten or ten or eleven years younger than me. He came down from Wyoming to enter that show. Well, him and I tied for the two highest scores in our category and uh, the judge says well when you got a tie you go back and look at them and you got to award an extra point somewhere you know and uh, he said I had to give the point to Tim for his attachment which list that bird was unbelievable the, the habitat I have to show you a picture later it it was unreal I mean he spent like six months working on this piece so anyways He ends up winning, you know, state champion, beats me by one point, but that was that bird that I, you know, almost won state champion with. But uh, anyhow, that part of it wasn't as special, you know, that's Uh kind of a side note to the meaning behind that bird, you know, so. Yeah, that's cool. So
0: do you feel like it just makes it more special when it's got a cool story behind it like that? It's not just, oh, I killed this cool pintail, but like, you know, it was my Mm -hmm. kid's first duck
1: or. You know, yeah. the story really is kind of what... Yeah, it really that's why you're in business. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's some people that want to get something mounted just to have it, you know, but there's a lot of this, the sentimental stuff. That's that's kind of what keeps you going is, yeah, it's, you know, somebody's wife's first duck or goose or their kids or, you know, their dog's last retrieve or first retrieve, all that stuff, you know, uh-huh. that has a lot of meaning behind it. And it's kind of neat to be able to get to memorialize those events through that you know craft yeah that's cool
0: did you um i think you were saying you got a few more like is it like ribbons or did you get a few more first place at at those conventions i feel like you usually do just yeah they end up really good well um so yeah, I've got. So I know you're every, humble, so you're not well, one to be like, "Oh yeah, I, I get everything."
1: But, uh, no, that's. But you, I uh, feel like you, they really do. Yeah each each bird that I've entered in in the contest, I've I've gotten all the blue ribbons except one, cool. and uh, and it was a white ribbon. And what's neat about those competitions is you have world champions that are judging this stuff, and then they'll critique it for you, so you can. You know, follow along with them on the day that they're on the last. Usually, the well, the evening before the last day, and then on that last day, these competitors follow the judge, and and this judge has a flashlight and is going to all of these people's pieces, and he's saying, "Okay, this is what I see. Where you can improve. This is what you did well." And you've got a group of people around this judge, and he's basically telling you how to get better. And, and really, why you do this is. You put all of that information into your customer pieces. At least that's why I do it. You know, um, I've learned a ton. People kept telling me, "Oh, you need to compete. You need to compete." and I'm like, ah, I don't. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't like. I don't like where I am in the. You know, I didn't feel like I was good enough, and I felt like I'd be embarrassed if I didn't score well or something. And they said, "No, there's, there's always going to be somebody worse than you there." You know, uh-huh. and and really, it's it's true. And so. But the reason we're there, a lot of people, they like the ribbons, they like the trophies and, and, and they like to push themselves. But for me, what I found is, uh, you know, I skinned a really nice mallard. The first piece I entered, I skinned a nice mallard and I went, oh man, this will be a good one. And it's nine days before the show. I went, okay, fine. I'll, I'll enter this, you know? And so, I mean, I was having to put a fan on it and a heater on it. I'm trying to get this thing to dry so I can take it to the show. It was, I was not planning on it. And, uh. But what I found was I spent so much time and attention on this one piece, and I'm watching it every day, and I'm pulling pins out of it and putting pins in different places, and I realized how much that skin moves over the drying process, and I realized... Oh, okay. This area that I kind of skimped on, I can now, after three, four, five days of drying, I can see what it's doing. And I went, Oh, okay. So the next time I do one of these, I need to do this different or that different. Then you get to the show, you've got this world champion judge here that's saying, Okay, this is where I see that you need improvement on. And you go, Okay, that's what I learned watching this thing dry for several days. And so that really to me is the purpose of doing it is you put so much attention on these certain aspects, learning your reference. I mean, you use a live a picture of a live bird for your reference and you sit there and go, okay, for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to focus on this head and make it look exactly like that head.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you move over to the wing and then you, you know, and so it just helps you to be able to see this stuff better. And, and, your bird that you get and your bird that you get and you know when i do yours i've had several years of these judges telling me how to be better and so your product is going to be better you know so that's the that's why i do it and um fortunately yeah each you know each piece that i've entered has got a blue and then i had that one white you know and so i'm talking to this judge and he says, "Oh well, I just I don't understand what's going on with this piece. Why do you have this in this shape, this and that?" And and uh, yeah, so I pull up the reference photo, and he goes, "Oh, I wish you would have put this picture with the piece." He goes, "I would have moved, and I was I was almost red." He goes, "Well, you're an automatic red. If I see this, I didn't I didn't know a bird really <laughs> did that." And and I'm like, "Okay, so I learned something there." So, anyways, that that was a big learning piece. Is hey, if you're gonna do something kind of off the wall. Tell the, show the judge what you're mimicking, you know, and he uh-huh. goes. He says, "Now, if I had this reference photo, you see where this is wrong and this is wrong." And I go, "Yep, that's why I didn't give you a reference photo." Uh. <laughs> so, anyways, that's a double edged sword, you know. Yeah, but oh, yeah. that's that's super cool.
0: And you do, I mean, so you've done you do pretty much all ducks. I know pheasants. Um, you've done a few cool sandhill cranes. Are oh. those are those
1: just a nightmare? they <laughs> They're, not cool. they're, so they're big. not cool at all. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I've got two more coming up. The, I I've stopped taking in those big birds. I just uh-huh. I hate them. I and I don't want to charge people what I think it's really worth. Mm-hmm. Other people across the country are charging astronomical prices for these honkers and cranes, and I just don't feel good about that. And, uh-huh. and at the end of the at the end of a season when I've shut down and I said okay, I've taken in too much work. I got to cut it off. <laughs> I get lots and lots of Calls for things that I would love to do, and I got a freezer full of these big dumb cranes and geese. I don't want to do them. So I decided now, I'm gonna turn away the stuff I don't like doing, and therefore there's more room for the stuff I do like doing. Cranes, honkers, turkeys, those are those things I'm not gonna take in anymore. They look neat when they're done. They're not fun doing them, not to me, you know. So but other people, man, they would rather do less number of birds. For more money so you're basically you're kind of your salary is about the same but it's quote unquote less work i don't feel like the work's any less and i don't feel like it's any fun <laughs> so uh-huh. i'm not gonna do them but I've, I've done you know a few and i have two more left in the freezer that i'm gonna do in the next few months here and uh-huh. and i'll be out of the crane business yeah going go uh, good at that they're, point they're really neat they're they're an interesting bird the skin is the skin's nice to work with it doesn't tear easily you can really put them on my flesh and wheel and you can really get on them and not burn holes in them like you do mallards and wood ducks and that's part of the process that a lot of people don't like is defatting these things and it's pretty easy to tear holes in the skin and you're doing lots of sewing and stuff cranes you don't have to worry about that with you can just go really to town. manhandle them yep <laughs> cool that's
0: awesome and you've also done a few of those wing bone turkey calls right have you still been kind of working on those or yeah,
1: gauge and i have two in the works right now he, that's cool is he like doing it with oh, you he loves it he loves that's it. awesome yeah i've i've done oh i don't know you know 12 or 15 of them and and so Gage's first turkey he wanted to make one for himself and then the guy that Took us. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make one and give to him. Cool. You know, so uh, we've got those, two, and he's doing all the work. Uh, I'm running the bones through the bandsaw, but Gage is uh-huh. pretty much doing everything else. You know, sweet. And uh, so that's that's really neat to spend. I like it that he enjoys that, but it's neat kind of father son time. And mm-hmm. when I'm dead and gone, he's going to have these, you know, calls that actually mean something. You know, that he's going to be able to have with him and takes some right back to those. You know memories and yeah of being together and the hunt and all that stuff. So, so it's all about. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's
2: awesome. That's sweet.
1: What well what are what are those by the way what you were just talking
2: about?
0: It's like the turkey wing. You can make okay. like a call out of them. I don't.
2: Is it so you like an like you make a turkey call out of them? Is yeah. that what you're saying?
1: Well, yeah. And so from what I understand, I mean the American Indians. You know I. I think from what I remember reading, they kind of discovered them, and so you take your humerus and radius and ulna, uh, radius and ulna out of the uh, turkey wing, right? So cut those three bones out, then you can cut the end off of each of those bones. Basically, glue three sections together so your your ulna will fit inside your radius, your radius will fit inside that humerus, and um, you. Glue them together, or at least find a way to get get them kind of airtight, and you can suck on that call and get it to sound like a hen turkey. That's wild. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. That's the short version, and then yeah. you can doll them up. You can, you know, I glue feathers on them, and you know, you can use on those joints. I usually use a two-part epoxy putty, and it hardens up on those on those two joints. I think it's a little unsightly, so I will either co- cover those joints with thread, or glue turkey feathers over it, and do thread in some cases. And then you put an epoxy, a, sh- a clear coat over the whole thing, and it, it hardens all of that up, and they they look gorgeous. I'm not I'm not very good using them, but they sure look
2: cool. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: So that's all right. Sometimes a trophy's good enough.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. That's cool. I don't know. Landon, you got anything to say?
2: No, I wish we wouldn't have talked for 45 minutes before we started because I was learning more in that 30, 45 minutes than I knew I was going to. So, uh. Welcome to school. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, yeah.
0: And I also like you do some cool, uh, like fans with the barn wood and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I always whenever you would post pictures, I'm like, Oh, that's a cool idea. Do you like kind of coming up with new kind of, I feel like a big part of the taxidermy stuff is just like what you're going to put it on. So like, whether it's the wood, whether it's like a, you know, the water scene with the dog's footprint, do you enjoy that part too? Or is that a little, do you prefer the bird side a little more? Or is it just kind of all part of the deal?
1: Yeah. It's, um, Oh, I'm kind of a, I've said I mean, yeah, since high school, really, and even in my employers, I've, I've told this before, and it's not a good characteristic, but I kind of like getting to know something and kind of just sticking with it. Like once I am comfortable with something, okay, now I can improve it. Now I can get faster at it. Now I feel comfortable with it. And I like staying in my little rut. Uh-huh. And every time I'm asked to kind of get out of that rut, I sort of have a little anxiety about it. you know. So if somebody says... Hey, I want a water scene with some splashes and stuff like that. I'm like, oh boy, okay. I'm gonna have to learn how to do this, and I sort of just have anxiety until that piece gets here, and then I do lots and lots of reading and studying and calling people and how are you do it? Okay, this guy does it like this. How do you do it? You know, and so and you put it all together. And most every time after it's done, I'm like, oh, that wasn't that bad. Uh huh. But I don't learn anything from that. I'm anxious about the next thing yeah. out of my rut that I got to do. <laughs> but um so the woodworking is kind of it's you know once you have all the tools that you need i'm more comfortable doing that um i think i could save some money if i just order this stuff from somewhere and, and uh-huh. have it put on it but there's lots of options for people and i i i've got all i think barnwood looks neat i think it's kind of timeless and and um you know, sometimes a certain color of stain will kind of come into popularity and then out of popularity, you know? Uh-huh. And I think barnwood's kind of, it's always been around. It will always be around. And so I, I make templates of stuff. I'll kind of draw it out on a piece of paper and then get it all symmetrical and then trace it onto a piece of cardboard or something. And I use that as a template and it, you know, I can't hardly go past a fence job where they have. Panels laying out on the side of the road, and not like fight the urge to get that, uh-huh. take it home with me, and so <laughs> you get a um, big old wood stack going I, in the I, shop. I do, yeah, yeah. I do. I've got a bunch of it, um, but so yeah, that's that's kind of in used to. I I would I had a wood burning tool, and I would make turkey tracks with this wood burning. So I would take my little stencil, and I would trace on this barn wood in pencil, and try you know try to see where i was and i took this wood burning tool and i'd kind of carve a turkey track in it or i'd maybe cut it with the bandsaw out of some type of thin wood and then i would paint it and put sand on it so it looked kind of like a sandy turkey track and some guy came in the other day and he and uh he said oh amazon's got these these steak brands and it's got one of a turkey foot and i'm like "Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm like for years I've been doing all this other stuff and I could have just stamped it with this brand so I bought one of those and well the first guy that came brought me a turkey and he and I said hey I'm thinking about getting this brand would you want that and he goes yeah I want that so you're like boom it paid for itself twenty one dollars right later uh-huh. twenty one dollars in two days I've got this thing that would have saved me hours and hours and hours over the years you know and uh-huh. and uh, it turned out really cool. So now I'm looking around the shop like, what else can I stamp with yes. this? You know, so <laughs> what else is on Amazon, just yeah. waiting to save you hours of time? Oh uh, yeah, it, man, it's amazing. That I think I have all the stuff I need in my shop to do my job, you know. And you talk to another taxidermist, and he says, "Oh, well, I do it this way." I'm like, "Oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that?" And every taxidermist has just a certain way they do things. It's a little, di- it all gets a job done, but it's a little different than you, and it's just like kind of mind blowing you know the and it's that way with all kinds of tools or all sorts of you know I always tell people in a taxidermy job you got a point A that you start with and you need to end at a point Z how you get there in between is up to you some there's ways of easier ways of doing it harder ways of doing it and I've experimented with all of them and when I'm teaching somebody or mentoring someone I, I always tell them I'm going to tell you the best way for you to feel accomplished in the shortest period of time with the least amount of hassle, um, I've done it the hard way. I'm telling you the easy way, you know? And I said, now you're going to learn that. Then you'll pick up other things and you're going to make that yours. And then you'll end up teaching that to somebody else. But it's neat that um, the more people, years ago, Nobody was really sharing taxidermy secrets, you know. It was kind of a hush-hush deal. If someone knew how to do something, they didn't want to tell anybody. And uh, luckily, our association, it's a group of people that says, we have no secrets, you know. And so whenever you get in with the right group of people and you surround yourself with folks who are invested in helping you get better, you get to learn all these little teeny tiny, you know, bits and pieces of uh You know tricks and things
0: that's cool yeah it's it's always awesome what yeah just what talking to someone can change or you know just an idea someone has Mm -hmm. i mean that applies to any hunting and fishing and just getting it's all that's kind of like what i always try and do it's just like hey like i just learned this like maybe you can you know maybe you can apply it too i'm like Mm -hmm. there's nothing i know that is going to Nothing I care about enough to not tell you. You (laughs) know what I mean. Yep. I might be a little hush hush about my favorite lake, but I'll tell you how to catch (laughs) them there without naming it. Uh huh. No, I I love that. Well, I guess we'll probably wrap it up there. I think this has been awesome just to kind of hear about your growing up. I don't think I've ever asked you about that stuff and um, just sharing turkey stories and stuff. I'm going out, um, you know, out west next weekend. So. I'm already tagged out. I'm just going to eat and hang out. Oh, that's (laughs) great. No
1: pressure. (laughs) You just, yeah,
0: that's fun. Yeah. So then we'll take a day off and see if me and Hudson can get it done here in the next couple weeks, too. You need
1: to, your guide's tagged out, so maybe you got a shot now. Well, maybe he's going (laughs) to snag my tag, too. (laughs)
2: Yeah, <laughs> and hopefully old GW isn't watching. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but You're putting them on blast last week. I know, so. they're going to
0: come for me. <laughs> I was ranting and raving about a guy that did Oh, is that right? Yeah, he, he was out there checking us for waterfowl and claimed he didn't bring his waders for this pelican that was all wrapped up in fishing line. I was like, I bet you probably have waders in there, buddy. You just don't want to deal with it. So, <laughs> I just ran about that, but yeah. We, yeah. Well, that, that can be a whole other podcast, game warden stories.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. My dad, uh, he was out of retirement for one of them, and uh, I don't remember what his name was or anything, but they were you know, just telling fun stories and stuff, and one of them, they were all out duck hunting, and um, they were on this pond, and probably they said like 20 ducks came in. It was like 10 minutes before shooting light, and they're all kind of sitting there like, Oh gosh, we can't, you know, or we really want to shoot at him, but, mm. you know, old Bobby, you know, is going to turn us in. And uh, he kind of like perks up and sees him, pulls up his gun, and just starts blasting. <laughs> <laughs> oh my <gosh. laughs>
2: And so then they were all jumped in, you know, started okay. shooting too. Yeah. And they're like, you are so different from us anyway. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so,
0: well, we appreciate you coming on. You got anything to add, Landon?
2: No, nothing. <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> you got anything, Hudson? No. Uh. Well, do you?
0: Uh. Should we wait? What? Nothing. I just remembered what I was supposed to say here. Oh.
2: Um. Well, I was just gonna ask. Do you? Do you want us to plug the taxidermy on here? But I know you got a lot of jobs oh. already. So yeah. I
1: no. It, I <laughs> mean, it We we don't need to. I've got. I've probably got all the work I need. Maybe if I. Need to drum up some business. I'll come back on and blast yeah, yeah. Well, the name everywhere, for our, our millions of listeners yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, I, thank you, Hudson, for asking yeah. about that. But yeah, you know, part of me getting off of social—I got off social media for about a dozen different reasons. But one of them was I need to be a little bit harder to find. You know, I'm uh-huh. just—it's a part-time job telling people no, and I'd, I had a form text message that i would copy and paste of other taxidermist name and numbers and i mean it was it was a part-time jobs you know i'm not taking anything let me Mm -hmm. send you some stuff and so anyway getting off social media man it's calmed that down a lot which helps my nerves and anxiety you know and kind of helps cool it down when i can just focus on my job and not having to direct people and going, oh man, I'm going to get six or seven calls today and I got to tell every one of them no. And so, yeah, anyway, kind of stay. I didn't understand that either. One of my buddies years ago, he says, no, I don't have a website. I'm not advertising. I want to be hard to find. And he says, I just, I can't keep up and I thought that was the weirdest thing. I thought like, that doesn't make any sense. Why don't you just hire more people or whatever and mm-hmm. here we are. I'm like ooh. That I get it. It made some sense. Yeah. I get it. That's a, so,
0: I mean, What a blessed spot to be in. Out of the corporate world and oh, yeah. getting to do what you love and whenever those guys come in you just get to talk hunting and fishing for a while.
1: So Sometimes that's fun. Sometimes it's like oh, i got this thing drying on me over here. I need you to stop yes. showing me yeah. pictures and <laughs> You know, which I never say, you know, Uh but sometimes that's it's a blessing and a curse. Uh Like, Uh, man, I think this can wait. I'll I'll go out fishing with you, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, man, it's you. Sure, meet a lot of interesting. I mean, it's people that like minded. Mm -hmm. You know, people, and man, there's a lot of invites, and I haven't. I mean, I really haven't taken anybody up on it, honestly. But you know. 25% Twenty-five percent of the people that come in say, "Hey, let's let's duck or goose hunt together this year." And so, if you wanted to write their name down and and you know keep in touch with them, you could probably get a lot of a lot of you know good hunting trips and stories and and you know a, a strengthened friendships, I guess you'd say out of it. And and uh, but man, if you took everybody up on all the offers, you just wouldn't have time. And, yeah, yeah. We Couldn't do it all, but uh
0: huh, and we can always dream. Mm-hmm. We'll never have enough time out in the woods, so no. But well, I appreciate you coming on, yeah, spending an evening for with having... us.
1: It's kind of we've talked for a while. I know. Yeah, was... I, I ramble sometimes. You got to shut me down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, this is that's what I want. I want someone that'll actually talk. So <laughs> that's good to hear some stories and talk a little turkey hunting, talk a little fishing and
1: stuff. So. Well, hopefully, the next podcast we can do on you guys, yeah, maybe the, do a role reversal and yeah. land and, <laughs> and grill you guys on your Hudson's turkey and.
2: Oh yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, I'll have one on the ground uh, next time that you're here, and I don't know. We'll see. We'll,
0: well send you, you some
2: pictures of old
0: yeah.
1: quadruple
2: bearded
0: dragon you know dragon inch and a quarter spurs and
1: everything oh yeah limb yeah.
0: absolutely <laughs> I hope it happens Yeah, uh, knowing me <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. pick
1: a different guide and maybe yeah, get that yeah let
0: Garen take you out and then uh, you'll probably yeah. see <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> alright well uh, we'll probably wrap it up here again thanks for coming on Garen yeah, you're uh,
1: welcome thanks for having me
0: yeah thank you to everyone that's listening to this and uh yeah, and like always, if, if you need a taxidermist, uh, well, don't come looking too hard, but no, maybe no. we can point you in the right direction here in a few months. So, um, thank you guys for listening. Make sure if you like it, tell somebody about it. And uh, that's what we'll
2: call it a day. So, we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks right. for tuning in. Thanks.